Welcome back to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Chris Gray. He's a property investment expert and the host of Your Property Empire on Sky Business. We have a chat about how he got into property investing, including a conversation with his mother about a pub curfew and his lifestyle as a Lamborghini driving, high-end boat piloting property investor. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining us, Chris Gray. Hi, how are you doing? Wonderful, I'm doing really well. Um, for those of us that um, maybe haven't heard of you, Chris, can you give us a bit of a background of, of who you are and what you do? Sure, so I'm basically a uh, property investor that does quite a lot of um, kind of talks and media around property. And I guess my 30 second story was uh, started in the UK as an accountant, started buying property at 22, uh, moved to Australia at 27, Retired from full-time work out of Deloitte's at 31. Um, took a few years off and played and uh, had a lot of fun. And then everyone asked me uh, how I did it. And so I started teaching people. And then basically from there that led on to TV. And then people said, can you just do it all for me? So uh, I built a business as uh, like a buyer's agency in a way that builds property portfolios for other people. And um, I guess the masses then uh, I basically teach them for free. Yeah, and it's not an uncommon story, is it? You know, someone achieves success in life and then suddenly their friends are saying, how do you do it? And then you get the idea, well, there's there's a business in this, or at least I should have to start charging for it because it's taking up all my time. Yeah, and so I guess for the skeptics out there, quite often they, they always say, oh, look, if you're making that much money from uh, whether it's property or shares or business, why would you teach other people? But I think a lot of people do that for, for giving back. And, and basically educators love, I guess, it when people do actually take action and then they email them or ring them five or ten years later saying, hey, I read your first book and this is what I've done. And it's um, really reassuring because after a while, once you're worth a certain amount of money, you don't need to do everything for money and not everything has to be paid. So I'd say probably 90% of what I do is completely unpaid. And I, and I guess once you get to the point where you, you're comfortable and you've made enough money, there, there are some different things in life that, um, that really have more, valuable, uh, more value for you, like spending time with your family and also helping other people that you, you can sort of maybe see a little bit of your, yourself in when, when you were starting out. Yeah, so look, the, probably the highest amount I ever got to charge was about $1,000 an hour for doing some coaching and mentoring. And what I found with that then, even though it's a hell of a lot of money and, and you'd never turn it down, I was actually kind of dreading that I had that commitment in my diary that I had to then go and do something. And so a lot of the time, I'd almost rather do stuff for free than be paid that kind of money. And after a while then, putting deals together, we can make a lot, lot more money, or even just my portfolio growing 10%, that's where the real money is. And so I'd rather have the flexibility not to be forced or have to have um, commitments that I don't necessarily want to do so then I can choose to do things just purely because I like doing them. And is that the the sort of intoxication for property with yourself? You can basically stay in bed for a day and you're still making money? Yeah or even a year or a couple of years. <laughs> that's, that's the reality because it's funny I, I always call myself naturally fairly lazy and my, my school report said it all the time that I'm always trying to do the quickest route and almost the laziest route. But then a lot of people said, well, Chris, you're not really lazy because obviously you performed and you worked twice as hard in your 20s to get the results. And so, I mean, I still say I am naturally lazy, but I can work really, really hard to try and get a result that then allows me to relax on the boat or travel or do whatever else. So I guess it's kind of work hard, play hard mentality. 
But yes, even though I've got a business, the majority of my money or all of my wealth actually comes from my own properties, rising in value and doing what I say that uh, I'm suggesting other people to do. And I think there's um, there's virtue in that laziness. It, it, it helps business owners to systematise because they realise they, they don't want to be spending their time on, on the recurring task. And I guess property sort of feeds into that as, as well. You, you've, you've, you've found a way to, to generate wealth without it taking too much of your time to manage. Is that fair to say? Yes. So I think the most valuable resource is, is basically time because it's not something that we can ever buy more of necessarily or, or get back. And so... I've always wanted to create wealth just to give me freedom and choice. I think that's the ultimate wealth that you create rather than the material things. And so I've just been super efficient with my time. So for instance, when I was working in Deloitte, I had a deal with my boss that basically, if I could get all my work done and all my internal, external customers were happy, I could then properly invest on the side. And so I recognized one of the most super efficient people there because if I got my work done in 20 hours, I then had 20 hours to invest. And so I had to make sure everyone around me was happy because as soon as someone complained that I hadn't done something, suddenly all those privileges would be taken away. Mm. So I didn't, and I think Facebook was only, I don't know if it was even there, but on emails and the rest of it, I wasn't hanging around chatting with friends all the time because I was trying to get my work done. And this is what I think a lot of employers don't do is there is no motivation for someone to work super hard. Sure, you get a 10 or 20 grand bonus, but that's not going to change your life. And so I didn't need the rewards of um, promotions and things like that. And they said, look, Chris, when we give um, one of the other staff five or 10 grand uh, reward or bonus, they go on holiday and they love us and the rest of it. You just buy another set of tires on your Ferraris go racing. <laughs> and so it doesn't make any difference to you. And so, again, that was the hard thing is, is the motivation to me wasn't monetary. It was to give me my time. Mm. Let's um, get a bit of an insight into the young Chris Gray, if we can. Um, obviously, you started investing at, at 22, but um, what, were, what were the posters on your wall as a youngster? Yeah, no, that was just, that's a really hard question. <laughs> I really don't know if I've got a clue. It was probably something like Standout Valley or something like that, or right. Nick in those days. Um, but look, I wasn't really into music. I, I wasn't necessarily into anything. Like, I'm not into football. I'm, I'm more of a generalist. I like a lot of things and a lot of variety, but there's not one thing or one person that really necessarily inspires me or controls my life. I'm not one of these uh, mad fans, unfortunately. Right. No, that's all right. You've got a a few of those yourself now, which we'll we'll get into in a minute. But um, can you give us an insight into the the 22-year-old that started investing with 35K? Where where did the 35 come from and and why why was 22 the age where you decided that this is what you were going to do? Sure. So basically, I gave up um, school at 18, didn't want to go to university, even though my dad was really trying to push it. Um, Became a courier in London. I think I started off with no money and ended up kind of £5,000 in debt after being a courier for nine months. Came to Australia, had no money, uh, did some backpacking for a while, worked seven days a week. And so the real turning point was I went back to the UK and going out on Saturday night with my friends to the pub and mum gave me a curfew and said, you've got to be back by midnight. And I said, Mum, no, look, I've travelled all the way around the world. I don't. If I can get back from Australia, I can get back from the local pub. But she said, no, it's my house, my rules, so uh, midnight it is. And so that was the catalyst to, um, uh, to get me to leave home. Now, we were lucky enough that we had inherited, I think, 10 or 20,000 pounds in those days, uh, just through um, uh, a, a relative. And 
I earned £10,000 then. And so when you invest in the UK in those days, you could borrow three times your income. So I could borrow £30,000 yep. plus, say, 10000 deposits, so 40000 Now, that wasn't... It was a lot of money in those days, but it wouldn't get you anything. It would get you a horrible little one-bedroom unit in the worst part of town. So I started looking at um, doing all these opens, and I just thought, no, I don't want to live there because my parents lived in a good area and a good house. So I fell in love with this uh, house right in the middle of town, right around the corner from the pubs, absolutely beautiful bachelor pad. And I thought, this is what I want. And, and, and this is one of my skills, is just the kind of goal setting, this is what I want, how do I do it? And I basically crunched the numbers, which again is really my school base. And I basically worked out that as long as I could get a mortgage for it, if I rented two rooms to two friends, I could actually live for free. And so I then went to my dad as more as a business case in a way to say, look, the numbers are showing that if I go and get a one-bedroom unit, I'm going to have no money. I won't afford to be able to go out. But if I could get a mortgage on this, um, this place was 100000 then um, I could actually live for free. And in the end, he kind of bought into that. And so I wasn't after a, a kind of a handout. I was really after his signature to say he would cover the pay repayments in an emergency. But we basically managed to get a deal on the place, so we got it for 80000 So I saved two years' salary, effectively, and then I lived for free. And that was the clincher, is, is like, suddenly I've got a free house, and I've made two years' salary. This beats working hard for a living. Yeah, exactly. And, and that sort of flipped a switch for you, I'm guessing. Yeah, and so we actually did the same thing the next year. So the same agent that got me this deal... She said, um, and, and I used to go uh, drinking with her uh, like on a Thursday, and so became good friends with her. And she said, oh, look, developer's got this other stock. We think he's underpriced it. We think it's um, worth a lot more than he really wants. So I went around to see it, and um, it was almost exactly the same, a three-bedroom um, kind of townhouse-type place right near the station. And I said, look, I'll take it, but you need to give me a few days. And then I went to my dad and I said, look, dad, you know how much I've made on this other property. Why don't we do a father and something like a, a bit of a venture together? Um, obviously, I've got the time. I've got the knowledge. I can go out and do all the work. You haven't got the time, but obviously you've got the, the finances to get the bank to uh, lend us some money. So why don't you put some money in? We'll pay you the same rate as um, we're paying on a mortgage, and then we'll get the rest of the money from the bank and I'll do all the work. Yep. And he said, fine, go and, buy, go and find a property. And I said, well, I've actually already found one and we need to sign for it tomorrow. <laughs> you got him on board with the concept and then sort of slid in that you'd, you'd already pretty much decided he was going to say yes? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, um, again, we made 20000 overnight. So he, he didn't need the money, he didn't want the money, but it was more he was doing something for the family, having a bond with his son and doing something together. And this is the thing I've, I've found because I speak to thousands and thousands of people these days and a lot of my older clients, like the parents' generation, they say we want our kids to get into property. We know it's going to be super expensive later on and we know it's better doing it at 20 than delaying it till 30, 40 or 50, but how do we get our kids motivated? And I think so many parents want to give the kids a help but they're not going to give them a handout because we all know a handout's not going to educate them and it will turn them into sport brats. And so I think this is the biggest question, and I go to a lot of ultra high net worth conferences, is how do you teach the, the kids the value of money, but kids want them, or parents want them to have a start. So if you're a kid out there and you think, my parents aren't gonna help me, they haven't got the funds and the rest of it, don't ask for a gift, but 
go out there and put a business case a bit like I did on that one better versus the three better or buying in a much better area that's got more chance of growth and less risk of going downhill and a lot of parents will actually help out. Yeah yeah I guess if there's a bit of strategy and and they can see that you've put the effort in then they 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 want want to help you succeed and a handout is, is is no guarantee of that is it? Yeah and and so look I learned a lot of my stuff um, in my 30s when I started doing property courses because they weren't around in my 20s. But I didn't know what a joint venture was. Right. But then when I learned what it was, I realized I'd actually done one at 23 buying my second property. And I'd done all these different things, but I'd just done it from a logical perspective rather than reading it in a book and, and being educated about it. Now, uh, after nine years, so um, you know, nine years after that, that first investment, you had a portfolio worth around 3.5. Um, was that just replication of the same strategy? And, and when you then sort of got that to, to $10 million after another six years, did, did the strategy change or, or was it fundamentally the same thing? Yeah, that's no, amazing because I guess the last 10 or 15 years, I've done so much education on property. We've done three or 400 interviews on Sky, but my strategy is actually exactly the same right. that I had at 22. And so I don't know if it's luck or timing or, or whatever else. Um, but look, yes, effectively what I did, so I bought those two in the UK. And then when I emigrated to Australia at 27, then rather than sell those properties, for some reason I didn't sell them, I kept them. Because in the UK they were positive cash flow. And so I just actually thought then, well, that's actually paying me money every month and that will actually afford for my trip um, to travel the world to then come to Australia. And then when I came to Australia again, I've just been brought up to live in your own home. And so I bought my first one in Coogee in uh, 99. And again, it was just by using the equity in the other properties to then leapfrog and just continuing on. And so it wasn't something um, that I'd learnt. It was just more of a logical thing that, yeah, keep accumulating rather than sell and pay all the taxes. Yeah, and that um, the difference in, say, selling those UK properties when you came over to holding on them would be worth an absolute fortune um, now in, in retrospect, wouldn't it? Yeah, because now I think they're probably four or £500,000. I'm just going through a refinance now. Um, and, and that's the thing is, is they've gone through GFCs, but because there were good properties and good areas with uh, no more supply because there's two or three storey height limits, it's where all the young professionals live and so they've always got jobs and so no one's selling and so suddenly prices aren't dropping. It's the same philosophy as Sydney is in the GFC, they're almost unaffected because you're buying right at the median price in blue chip suburbs by people that can afford to, to hold them. And so, so I think that's that's been the luck of what I bought into is because I was that young professional, I then bought what I would want to live in, and I just happened to be a good demographic that was pretty solid wherever you are in the world. Yep, yeah, fantastic. Now, Chris, for, for the people that do know you, I, I guess um, you've got a big profile as the host of Your Property Empire on, on Sky Business. Um, they've probably seen you on social media, on a super, hot in, uh, super yacht in Sydney Harbour or flying business class or driving your Lamborghini around Coogee. How, how much of that would be happening without property? And, and is that sort of basically what your life is now, practicing what you preach in, in lifestyle and property? Yeah, look, I don't think I could have ever, ever dreamed of any, any kind of life like this at all, um, not even Australia. And, and look, when I came to Australia in, uh, kind of when I was nineteen twenty, I, as I said, I was like maybe £5,000 in debt, so I worked as an accountant in North Sydney, 
Uh, the weekends I lived in Manly and worked in a petrol station. Um, but effectively, I went down to the beach from like 7 to 1 at the weekend, then worked in the petrol station filling gas from 2 till 10, then went down to the pub for a few hours and then home for sleep for a few hours and then can repeat. And I thought, if you've got no money in Australia, you can have an amazing life yeah. because most of it's based around the weather. And if you like the, the beach and, and the sea and the water lifestyle, then it doesn't cost you anything. It's, it's an amazing place. And look, certainly if you have got money over here, then you can have uh, an exceptional life. So look, all of that was paid through, through property. Um, and to get into some of those things, then it is a lot of money. And to try and do that from post-tax, from wages, you're just never going to have the money. But there's also a smarter way of doing things. So when I was 22, or actually 24, I learned how to refinance my house and I bought a Porsche. Now, I couldn't afford a Porsche because a brand new car was very expensive and over a three-year lease, I couldn't afford it. But by using some of the equity, some of the profit I'd already made from that property, I bought a second-hand £10,000 car that probably three years later when I went to sell it was still worth nine or 10000 So they don't really depreciate. Um, I bought a 360 Ferrari before for 160 grand that was a four four hundred and fifty grand car, and in three years it went from one sixty to a hundred. So the depreciation's almost gone on these cars, and so even the Lamborghini. The Lamborghini is a seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar car, which is a ridiculous amount of money. But I bought it ten years old for two fifty, and now it's risen in value to three or three fifty. So this car is actually making me money, and makes more money than it actually cost me. Yeah, so that's a that's a difficult sort of thing to to get right as an investing niche. But um, I mean, even in the worst case scenario, you, you're you're paying so far under market price that um, you know you, you're famous for uh, a, an article where you were talking about it's cheaper to own a Lamborghini than a BMW, and I guess that's what you're getting at there, isn't it? You, you're looking at a, a brand new BMW that just loses so much of its value the day that it's driven away. Yeah, and so if you spend 200 grand on a car, it would be worth 100 later on. But everyone's after that brand new thing. And in Australia, it's not as much. Whereas in, in the UK, they would have a, like a letter of the alphabet to, to denominate that this is the letter for this year. And so on the 1st of August, everyone wanted to have the new, uh, the new number plate because it just showed all their neighbours that they're rich and they can afford a brand new car. But I'm saying, who cares? Yeah. Um, anyone that knows Lamborghinis know that it's a 10-year-old car and they appreciate it for what it is. The people that don't know, don't know, so who cares? Yeah, exactly. And the same thing yeah. goes, for, goes for boats. So we've got a $1.5 million boat, but we pay 50 grand a year rather than 350 grand a year because we own an eighth share in it because if you don't drive it every day, don't pay for it every day. Yeah. Um, and so some people might laugh and say, oh, well, you're poor, you can't afford your own fully, kind of fully owned boat. Well... I'd rather pay fifty than three fifty when I'm not going to use it all the time. Exactly, and 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 you probably can, um, but just because you can doesn't mean it makes financial sense because you can you know, untie that money and invest in property that's going to appreciate, and the boat's not going to do that. Yeah, and and I use the boat for entertaining a lot of clients, so it actually makes business from it. We don't get a tax deduction, so in case the tax man's listening, <laughs> then uh, it's not a deductible expense, even though I think it should be. Um, but effectively we use it as business tools. We then go and rent super yachts that are worth 10 or $15 million, but we rent it for 24 hours. We have two lots of parties. I then get five partners in there. And so it costs us something like two or $300 a head, which in corporate entertaining is very, very cheap. But 
we don't want the 10 to 15 million dollar super yacht every day just sitting there rotting away yeah and so the whole idea about um i mean now with property with your own home is rent vesting is they say you can't afford to own the home in the suburb you want so rent it instead yeah and that's what i do with my cars my boats and all the rest of it so you really can have the multi-million dollar lifestyle but without actually being that wealthy and you're living in a, a property, um, last time I, I sort of saw something online, you were living in a property that you were renting and the rationale was that that would be a poor investment, that property, but a great place for you to live. Yeah, and so the way I kind of describe it these days is almost like Monopoly. So if you go and rent the hotel on Mayfair or Park Lane, the most expensive property in town, not many people can afford to rent it and the people that can afford to rent it don't rent it because they want to buy it because they think poor people rent and, yeah. and that's the stigma in Australia so effectively what happens is the price comes down and so on super expensive properties the rental yield on that could be as low as one percent whereas if I buy lots of one one and a half million dollar units in like the Bondi's or the Coogee's there's lots of demand for that so the rent's quite high and so normally a long-term rent's around four to five percent so basically the mathematics are is whatever you can afford to buy you can rent somewhere three times more expensive for the same money yep. and then you get a tax deduction because all of the rents or sorry all of the mortgage is against investment property awesome now chris i wanted just to to talk about um how you retired from full-time work at 31. um we're talking about you know property replacing the sort of all eggs in your same basket salary uh, is there a, a magic level of equity or number of properties that can replace say a hundred or hundred fifty thousand dollar salary yeah, so look, I roughly worked out on doing it at something like 3 to 5% of what you need. You need that roughly in assets. So, so let's say you had a million dollars in assets, and if they were good, good properties, you might expect them to grow at 5 or 10% a year, so 50 or 100 grand. So you might say, well, look, let's pretend, let's cut it back a bit, and let's call that 20 or 30,000. And so you need kind of X million dollars to give you that certain kind of income. Yep. And look, it's, it's not quite as, as kind of basic as that, but it gives you a ballpark idea. So basically for me then, I had six properties, and in the boom of, this was kind of 2001, 2002, they were growing at about 20% a year, so about 100 grand each. So I was roughly making 600 grand a year for two years in um, capital growth, and at the same time I was earning 80 grand at Deloitte, or so about 60 after tax. Yeah. And so the thought process was is, I couldn't spend 600 grand a year in those days and that was the good old days of the low doc and no doc loans so I could effectively pull 80% of that out from the bank so roughly 500 grand in cash and obviously if I spent it all then that would be pretty stupid I'm just digging a bigger and bigger hole but if I put aside say 50 or 100 grand and lift off that and reinvested the other 400 then to me that was a reasonable kind of financial plan and that, that's when I thought after a while then look maybe I'll get out of work but a few years later, I suddenly realized that when you don't work, then you've actually got 24 hours a day to spend, so you spend more money. <laughs> and um, I suddenly thought, well, look, the market isn't always gonna grow in value, so I actually need to build a bit more of a buffer and maybe get to a $10 million uh, portfolio just to make sure I've got plenty of money for the rainy day. Yep, 
Now, you, you work with obviously some high net worth individuals and some super high net worth individuals, um, but you say that a salary, even a, an, a, an exorbitantly high one, is, is un, unlikely to make you rich. And this is a bit of an aha moment for you, I think. What, why is this the case? Oh, look, it seems it's, it's such a first world problem. <laughs> I, um, I was actually in the pub with some family friends yesterday, and this was a barrister, and he said, look, I earn 800 to a million dollars. And I went to see a financial plan and they told me to sell my house and invest in some savings plans or something like that. And it seems ridiculous that someone on a million dollar salary um, is potentially still kind of needing to work hard to uh, to get the money going. Yeah. But look, it, it was really from my Deloitte days. So so what I did at Deloitte is I then worked for, a recru- even though I was an accountant, I worked for a recruiting arm. So we used to get candidates and put them into our clients like on temporary contracts. And so I interviewed... 10 people a week, so over two years, that was a 1,000 people. Now, all of these CFOs and finance directors, they could already do their jobs, and they were cleverer than me from accounting-wise, so we just talked about kind of personal wealth and property and what's going on in the world. And this is what I got to realize, is a lot of these guys earned quarter of a million, half a million, but a lot of them weren't wealthy. And as they got older into their kind of late 40s and 50s, quite often they might get made redundant, and it might take them another year to replace that half a million dollar salary. Mm. And quite often they have partners that might be out spending, kids at private school, a couple of new cars, overseas holidays, and that half a million dollar salary did literally disappear. Yeah. And I know there's no one out there feeling sorry for these people or anything, <laughs> but, but that is the reality. And your boss is never going to tell you that the, the seat at the top isn't necessarily kind of laden in, in gold and, and that, because they want all the workers to keep on working and trying to get the bonus. Yep. But everyone thinks the bonus or, or a wage increase is going to change their lives. But in reality, it doesn't. And it doesn't create wealth because you pay tax on it. And the more money you earn, the more money you spend. Yeah, and the, it's these incremental lifestyle changes that seem to ratchet in, in direct proportion to the salary increase, isn't it? Yeah. And so you're just basically going to spend that extra money. And so I think the only way you do it, and, and obviously I'm, uh, I'm into... Um, uh, property, but other people could be into shares or to business. So there's not property isn't the only way. But the bottom line is, is you need to invest other money in assets because quite often then you're leveraging those assets. So if I've got a hundred thousand dollars, I can normally buy five hundred grand or a million dollars worth of property. That even if it grows at five or ten percent, it's almost a fifty or a hundred percent return on your money. Yep. Now, Chris, most investors only have one property. That's unlikely to, to give them a, a huge change in their lifestyle or, or to, to enable them to move away from the salary reliance. Why do you think that is the case? And, and why are so few people getting enough properties to fundamentally change their financial position? Yeah, the, the hard thing is, is ultimately people have got to sacrifice. And so if you want to move ahead and you want to buy more property, most property is negative gears and you've got to save a deposit for it. And so for every 10 grand you save, you might think, well, I could go off to Bali or Thailand or whatever else. And so everyone wants things now. And so unless you've got a massive driver or will to change, then most people won't change. It's like losing weight. It's, for, for 90% of people, is if you exercise more and eat less, you'll lose weight. Um, are most people super fit? No, because they see a pizza or they go to the pub or they go and do this or they can't be bored and they want to watch TV. So none of this stuff is rocket science. Is You've just got to have a big, big motivator. And my motivator was I didn't want to work. I didn't want to be told what to do. 
I like the material things in life and my motivations were big enough for me to get off my backside and do something. And so people say, you're lucky you're an accountant. Well, it's not luck. I did a full-time job and I spent five or six years at night college. So I was out from seven in the morning till 10 at night, four or five nights a week. And then I had to study on top of that at the weekend. But in hindsight, yes, I was lucky I was an accountant. Um, I've been in debt since I was 18. And so sure, I might not work a lot of hours and I might not work that hard, but my current debt's over $10 million. Now, that's quite a weight on your shoulders, and especially when we've had 10 or 11% interest rates. So again, people will say, you're lucky, Chris, and yeah, sure, I am lucky, but I've, I've paid the sacrifice for that. And so I think nothing, nothing in the world is for free, and there's plenty of people out there that haven't been educated, that um, haven't got a wealthy parents that have helped them, and they've gone out and got five jobs, and they've worked really hard and studied, and, and um, they've made the money, and I think good on them. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And it's nice to hear someone driving a Lamborghini talk about working in a petrol station. And I think, um, you know, obviously you're a lover of the finer things in, in life and, and European sports cars are a fairly expensive purchase. But, but such was your desire to, to reach that sort of level that you, you lived a very stoic and, and modest life just to, to, to set the wheels in motion, I guess. And, and look, it's balance. So, so last year I did a supercar rally and um, there was 180 supercars from Lamborghinis, Ferraris, uh, Bugattis, and we raced from London, Paris, Lyon, I think Monaco, Barcelona, Valencia, and stayed in five and six star hotels, and it was a trip of a lifetime, absolutely unbelievable. Now I'm doing one called Mystery Box or Shipbox Rally in Australia in November, and we're doing it for Cancer Council, and I bought a 25 or, or 32-year-old uh, 1985 Cadillac limousine, Awesome. And we're going to be racing in the outback, or not race it, we're going to drive it in the outback. <laughs> we're sleeping in tents and swags. It's going to be steaming hot, probably rainy, and the rest of it to go to completely another extreme. Yeah. And so whether I'm driving the Lamborghini or this clapped out old Cadillac, I don't care because I just love driving. And I think my next dream car is a Model T Ford that's 100 years old, but you can pick them up for 15 or 20 grand again. Yeah, wow. So I've just got a passion for doing stuff. I don't really care if it's five star or one star. It's um, it's just taking part and being around good people. I want to uh, talk about the the specific nuts and bolts um, of of the property that that you select. You're a you're a blue chip man, I, I guess. Can you talk us through the types of properties that you purchase for your clients um, here in Sydney and across Australia? Yeah. Um, so typically, my thought process has always been is if you want people to pay their rents you need to get good people with good jobs because if their boss finds out, then um, they won't be happy. So those guys will pay their rents. And look, it's not 100% of the time, but I think it's reasonable. And so I guess with all the knowledge, there's affordability problems all around the world. So people constantly say, how can property keep rising? And one of the guys, John Edwards from Residex, who um, always uh, predicted capital growth, he said, Chris, look, the market finds a way to sort these problems out, but the bottom line is supply and demand. So if you buy in areas where there is no more supply, i.e. they're close to the CBDs and there's height limits, and there's lots of demand from young people that have got high disposable incomes and are in jobs that they're not going to lose necessarily, then the price goes up. And so if you take Bondi Beach as an example, there is no more property in Bondi Beach. It's fully built up. You're right on top of your neighbours. 
people are spending 10, 20 or 30 million dollars on penthouses. So a million dollar two bedroom unit with parking 500 meters from the beach is worst house, best street philosophy. And on a summer's day, there's queues and queues of people that will buy it or rent it. And that's what's pushing the prices up. And so that's what I bought. And so they're not cheap to, to afford. Um, they're negative geared and so it might cost you 10 or 20 grand a year to hold it depending on how much money you've borrowed um, but I think on average it should go up 50 or 100 grand a year over a 10 or 12 year period or so. Yep and, and, and do you select properties based on the client that you're representing for example a, a high net worth is, is going to be a lot more comfortable in managing that sort of negatively geared property do you, do you adjust the strategy depending on the individual? So we do a tiny bit, but most of the people come to me saying, Chris, look, you've made the money. If it's good enough for you, it's probably good enough for me. What would you suggest I do? Yeah. Um, and so look, it, it, it will be tailored slightly. So, I mean, I'll get our youngest clients are probably in their, in their late 20s and they may be in, say, 100, 150 grand joint incomes, like as a boyfriend, girlfriend type thing. And our wealthiest clients are in the hundreds and hundreds of millions. Yeah. But typically the super wealthy buy the same thing that I would buy or we'd buy for the 20 year olds, but they might just buy a whole block of them because then it's easy to manage. They might buy a block of 10 versus just buying lots of individual ones. Um, But effectively they're all betting on the same thing. They're betting that we're not sure if it's gonna go up today or tomorrow or if it's even gonna go down, but we think in five or 10 or 20 or 30 years, it's gonna be more expensive than today and as long as we can hold on in the short term and 99% chance the tenants will always be in there, then we're going to make money. Yep. And, and how emotional are the high net um, income earners compared to, to people on a lesser salary? Is there a difference in mindset and their attitude to investing? Yeah, so some of them, their attention to detail is unbelievable. They can spot a dollar missing from a mile away, right. not because they're tied, just because they're used to seeing financial reports and seeing those kind of things. And so it's, it's amazing working with some of those people because they're just, they are very, very intelligent. Uh, on the good side, a lot of them are very, very big picture. And so even though they can see that dollar, they won't scrimp and save over it. And so some of them will let us spend hundreds of thousands on renovations and I can make decisions for them because I've got the best interest at heart. And that's what's really nice working with them when, when you've built up that trust. But ultimately, they are thinking long term and and they're never thinking of selling. And they just think, look, you've got to spend money on experts and hire the professionals and do things properly rather than trying to pick the cheapest person because you, you, you kind of pay for the cheap things and, and it's going to break down. And is that part of the reason why you think that most investors only have the one properties that they might not be getting the right advice or they're just looking at um, a property based on, I think you mentioned in your book, uh, dinner party type investing? Yeah, the unfortunate thing is, is the people that really need the financial advice are the ones that can't pay for it or don't pay for it. And so, say a typical financial planner, you'll get for free. And that's what the advice is worth effectively. And that's what the average Australian gets. Whereas a proper financial plan where they, they're paid by you and there's no commissions or backhanders or anything like that could easily cost you five or 10,000. Now, if, if you're trying to make money, a lot of people say, oh, I can save that five or 10 grand and keep that towards my deposit and I'll get the free advice. 
but no one works for free. The free advice has always got to be biased. Yeah. And so it's quite often the free advice is the most expensive advice. And so I pay some of my advisors a thousand an hour and it's the best money I've spent in the world. Yeah, well, Obviously not everyone yeah. can afford that um, and, it, and it takes time to build up to that. But the whole idea is, is it's a journey. And so when you're young, you can't afford the advice, but you get some and you maybe you, you need to read more books and do more courses and then reinvest in yourself. So one of the, the advisors I had before, he said, look, reinvest 5 or 10% of your wealth into educating yourself or paying for advisors because effectively you're reinvesting it into your portfolio to then get a better return or to, to de-risk it. I think that's just fantastic advice. Uh, Chris, let's just go through a, a scenario of someone that is, say, on a, a much more modest income. Um, they're looking at an investment property, maybe sort of the Bondi million dollar units are out of their, their league. Should, should they be waiting to, to save up for a higher deposit or, or what's the best strategy to, to getting into property if, if you don't have that, that big capacity or that built-in equity in your, your principal place of residence already? Yeah, look, generally my thought process is is that property is always more expensive tomorrow than it is today. And look, I understand there's more volatile parts of Australia where that's not, not always the case, but there's always a reason not to invest. And so if you put it off today and say, oh, I'm going to save for a bigger deposit, most of the time the property is rising by quicker than you can save. Yeah. And so I think it's much better to get into the best suburb you can possibly get into. And it's all about location. So I'd much rather run down pretty crappy um, property right in a good suburb than a pristine one that's a few k's out and just get in the market and then let that grow, pull the equity out and then keep repeating. And it's using things like lenders mortgage insurance. If you can pay 10 or 15 grand extra on top of your loan costs to put a 5% deposit down then a 20% deposit, you either get into the market quicker or you get more for your money, you get a better property and that will more than outweigh the cost of the, uh, the mortgage insurance. So I think the main rule is is concentrate on how much money you're making as a net return rather than what things actually cost you. Fantastic advice, Chris. Look, I just wanted to, to wrap this up shortly, but um, how, how do in, people get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you and, and how, how do you help investors um, in, in building their portfolios? Sure. So the quickest thing is just uh, Google me or just the, the website is yourempire.com.au. And probably the best resource on there is the SLSF Empire books. I've written or co-written about four or five books, but the one book I put together after I did my coursework um, so that I didn't need to spend two or three hours with every single person was called the SLS Empire, and that's really how to build a portfolio into the 10, 15, $20 million level, even if you're starting from nothing. And, and that really gives you all the tools that you need to get out there. I guess what I then do for the people that can afford it or see the value in, in paying like a 2% fee to, to buy is that we can actually implement all that and do it for them. But if, you, if you're starting out and you haven't got those kind of funds, there's so many resources. Again, Google me on YouTube. There's probably 200 videos, educational videos on there. There's so much free information out there. But look, not all free information is good, but just see where the people make, make their money from and that'll really kind of give you an indication as, as how independent they are. As I said, I make the majority of my, my money from my own portfolio, and then I make it from the people we use from the buyer's agency, so I don't really necessarily need to have a vested interest for, for the rest of the masses to turn them into, um, to, to do different things. I, I just share what I do, and if people like that, then they can uh, follow on. 
Fantastic, and, and we'll share some of those uh, resources as well uh, to put people in touch with you. Um, just to wrap up, Chris, if there's one piece of advice you could impart, uh, what would it be? Yeah, look, I think the main thing is is just go and do it. Like the uh, the Nike ad is, is look, you're going to make mistakes. It's not always going to be easy, but if you don't give it a go, you've got 100% chance of getting nowhere. And so you've got to make a start. Quite often if things go wrong, it's not as bad as it uh, as you expect it to be. And at least you've got a chance of uh, moving ahead somewhere. And if it does go wrong, look, you've learned a lesson and hopefully you won't repeat it. So um, you've just got to be in it to win it, I think. Awesome. The best time to invest is yesterday. Exactly. All right, Chris, thanks very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Really much appreciated. My pleasure.